Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? Beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. I'm thrilled to say that this week we're joined by the great, the one and only Kim Newman, uh, live from his front room in London. Kim, I'm still in lockdown here in Hampshire. So you and I haven't seen each other for quite a while. How are you doing? I'm fine. Um, <laughs> yeah, not not being as productive as one might have hoped during a period of, uh, in theory, no distractions or other work or job. It's, I'm, I'm supposed to be working on a novel, but that's taking quite a while to, to get going. But uh, I'm reasonably healthy. Um, I, yeah, I have the supplies I need. Um, and nobody's burning down the street outside. Uh, today very good so yeah uh, yeah I uh, as as global crises go I'm weathering this one reasonably well um, the the only danger is the uh, the increasing anger and fury that we're all living with so yeah yeah, yeah. now uh, our patron subscribers who are able to watch this on video will have noticed that you were just holding up a, a an, an action figure what was that Kim it's a Norman Bates action figure Fantastic. Um, I and believe this is the Norman Bates from Psycho 3 for complicated rights reasons. You can't get an action figure of Norman Bates from Psycho, probably to do with the Hitchcock estate, but you can get a Norman Bates Psycho 3 action figure, which is wow. dead useful. Yeah, I usually have it in the bathroom for obvious reasons. <laughs> now, the reason that you're holding that is because... Um, we're celebrating the 60th anniversary of Psycho and literally just gone a month or so uh, ago, also the 60th anniversary of Michael Powell's Peeping Tom. Extraordinary that these two movies were released within a couple of months of each other. Both had such different uh, fortunes. The interesting and yet both are thing that I, I find is that not only that they're released so close together that they couldn't have influenced each other. Obviously, Hitchcock and Michael Powell knew each other from um, Britain in the 1930s. But by 1959, when these films were being made, they couldn't really have known what you know, the other director was making. So these films are complementary. You know, they, they tackle similar subject matter. Um, I do think that Hitchcock learned a very, very important lesson from Michael Powell, um, which is don't show the film to the critics. Um, uh, after what happened when Peeping Tom was uh, slaughtered by the British press, uh, Hitchcock uh, decided not to press show Psycho in Britain and said, if, yeah, on, the, on the, the theory that the, the critics couldn't hate it more if they had to pay to see it. So just for anyone who doesn't know, um, Michael Powell's Peeping Tom, which is this story of uh, voyeurism and a photophiliac who adapts his camera to become uh, an instrument of death. One of the tripods has got a, a dagger in it and he uses it to kill people and film their faces at the moment of death. It wasn't just badly received by the critics. It, it Critics actively hate it. Tell us about that. Oh, yeah, it's... This is something that anyone who's a creative artist will understand. In his autobiography, Michael Powell quotes to the letter, to the word, all the bad reviews that Peeping Tom got. Yeah. He remembered, you know, I think 40 years later, or, or, or it was 30 years later, he remembered the sentences were burned in his head. He probably didn't remember any of the good to great reviews he got through the rest of his career, because it's always the bad ones you remember, isn't it? It's always the, yes. the, the, the one person who doesn't like something, you'll remember that forever after a hundred great reviews. But Peeping Tom only got terrible reviews. You look at the... Um, well, I, we say that. It, it got terrible reviews from 
the national press. Um, I wonder if that might slightly have to do with the fact that the film, besides being confrontational and and transgressive and and difficult, is very rude about the media. Um, There's a a wonderful moment at the beginning where the the voyeur is lingering at the site of a murder he's committed and he has a camera with him and someone mistakes him for a, a reporter and says, what paper are you from? And he says, The Observer. Um, which is a a, a good joke about uh, about his basic attitude, but also the film critic of the Observer walked out, <laughs> yeah, um, and did one of those <laughs> I hated this film so much reviews, that, uh, uh, and. Later on, in fact, there are there are I, I, uh, we both work um, for the the BFI journal Sight and Sound, and there's a very funny joke about Sight and Sound in there as well. I think Sight and Sound didn't actually give it a particularly terrible review, um, although they did uh, publish uh, an article about the the state of British horror films, which at the time were thought to be you know, going too far and letting the side down, and and uh, and not the sort of thing that we should be watching. Look out! Look out! Look out! Take care. You are being watched. We repeat, take care, for you are now alone with a killer. We warn you, don't let him see the fear in your eyes. For this is what he seeks, and this is why he kills. Where are you? Where are you? out for Carl Byrne as the peeping Tom. Fear him, but pity him also. <laughs> it's no good. Watch out for Moira Shearer as the lovely stand-in who innocently dances into danger. Imagine. Um, Scorsese is kind of pretty much responsible for bringing the the film back into mainstream circulation. In America, and getting a, yes, it, 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 yeah. it remained maybe because people had hated it so much. It made, it remained quite well known in Britain. Um, one of the things that no one's quite able to sort the mythology out about is because everybody. Um, or my, in, and of course, Michael Powell in, in later interviews and in his autobiography talks about how the film was withdrawn and dis- and it's hard to verify that. Um, it seems to me that people saw it, um, which doesn't generally happen with films that are suppressed. Yeah, I, I, it played television certainly in the nineteen seventies. I saw it in um, a film society in the in the seventies and then in the Scar. So it was in circulation constantly. I think it was what. Scorsese did was bring it out again in a sort of restored form and we saw just how lurid that Eastman colour is I mean it is gorgeously offensively colourful um, uh, and the, 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 the and actually it's not particularly violent it's disturbing but the murder sequences certainly compared to, to the, the stabbing in Psycho but also compared to the average Hammer film there's very little blood and gore in it it's just kind of nasty and queasy and disturbing um, which I'm sure is exactly the, the, the thing Michael Powell set out to do the other thing that has always struck me about it, even before I knew where the location was, we open actually just round round the corner from where the BFI is, and there's this. Well, we open this Newman Passage, which is Newman one of Passage. My, yeah. I keep meaning to get my author photograph taken against the sign because it is. It's one of the great London locations. Actually, it's it's this. It's brilliant. Yeah, and, and it, I mean, it, it, it's really it feel, it feels kind of modern Gothic because it's by the side of a pub, and then and there's there's a shop window by the other side, and you go into it, and there's this kind of arch, and it does feel like you're walking onto a onto a movie set. Yeah, and I'm surprised that it's not been used that often since. Maybe because Peeping Tom sort of owns that little bit of landscape. It's also got one of those great things. You know how people in um, yeah. The British press always react to when you get a movie. I'm thinking there's an American movie called Patriot Games shot in London. And yeah. everybody at the press show laughed when, you know, characters move three miles between shots, you know, uh, where where you're in you're in Leicester Square and then suddenly you're in Hampstead and then you're back in Soho. There's, in, in, at the beginning of Peeping Tom, you have the murder in Newman Passage and then... Uh, 
Mark Lewis, the, the killer, played by Carl Berm, gets on his, his little scooter and goes to work in a newsagent. Now, the thing is, if you know the area, you know that what he's done is cross the road because the newsagent is on the <laughs> other side of Rathbone Place. From, uh, and I think it's done quite cleverly. You never get a shot that shows you how close these two locations are, but they are literally different sides of the same road. Um, and, and Mark even does this sort of bit of a... A, a, a grunt to show that he's travelled somewhere and he's, he's moved a bit. Yeah. What's going on here? Murder. One of the girls. If you're a regular listener to Kermode on Film, you can find the location report that I did on uh, Newman Passage, because I think I, every time I walk through it, I, I, I think about Peeping Tom. And actually, one of the first times I ever went through that passage, I remember being really struck by, you know, that it had an atmosphere to it. And then later on, seeing Peeping Tom and it immediately leaping out at me. I think the other reason for me that Peeping Tom is as creepy as it is is it does feel like it's a film that leads you by the hand or stalks behind you and leads you into that world. You do feel, I know this is a great critical cliche, Kim, I know I'm not saying anything new, but you do feel complicit in it. It is a film that, people always talked about this with Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and movies that, you know, that turn the camera the other way, but it is true that Peeping Tom does make you go, you're enjoying this, aren't you? What are you getting out of it? Why are you watching yeah, and in fact, you enjoy it more than the killer does. The killer is remarkably joyless, isn't it? I mean, because uh, I, 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 obviously for this, I watched it again yesterday, and the thing that struck me is whenever, when, whenever anybody asks him what he's doing, he says, I'm finishing a documentary. And the whole idea is, is the sort of sense at the time is, documentaries weren't films you were going to enjoy, were they? <laughs> and in fact, they're not films anybody's going to watch. <laughs> you know, um, it's not like, he doesn't say I'm making a horror film. Yeah, um, it's it's all this idea that, that, that of, um, in the 1970s and 80s, when people were getting hit up about video nasties and, and slasher movies, they started taking seriously things that are jokes in Peeping Tom. Um, like that whole thing about it, uh, that people said that uh, using subjective camera as the killer in Halloween made you identify with Michael Myers, which is utter nonsense. Nobody watches Halloween and identifies with Michael. You identify with Laurie because there she is in the middle of the screen being sympathetic. But in Peeping Tom, the subjective camera killer really is the killer. The cameraman really did it. Um, and there's this whole thing about turning the the camera into the... Uh, yeah, the, the 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 spike that kills people, that sort of impales people like butterflies, uh, and and I think it's that old um, sort of myth about certain people who felt that being photographed took their soul away from them, and photographing them is an aggressive and an evil act, which you know um, obviously there is an element of of voyeurism and sadism in the job of being a film director and people who worked with Michael Powell and indeed Alfred Hitchcock tended to um, support the veracity and said that sadism was a part of their their general approach uh, and yet uh, collaborators were also capable of being enormously loyal and enormously charmed by them. How much do you think it matters that, that Powell was half of Powell and Pressburger, who had made a series of the best loved, I mean, often quite confrontational, but some of, the, some of the best loved British films of the period beforehand? How much did people just feel betrayed that Michael Powell had now made something that was so alarming? I don't think that that had meant that was that um, great a factor in it, in that Powell and Pressburger... Um, their heyday had been like 10 years earlier, the great films they made in the 1940s. And there were people who didn't like them either. Um, they, you know, they became sort of critics' darlings in the, in the 80s, yeah. Um, and they were actually probably more commercially than critically successful on their first run. They had made, you know, The Red Shoes, which is one of those films everybody likes, but that also uh, is about how 
you know, murderous and dangerous art can be. And, yeah, it's a it's a great uplifting, beautiful film that does end with a suicide. Yeah, and one of my favourite of their films, the a Canterbury Tale about the glue man who who yeah. Um, pours glue in good time girls hair so soldiers will go to history lectures yeah uh was already seemed to be sort of insane and they'd i mean a uh, power press road also broken up by this point i think probably critics were primed to go for peeping tom more by the general concerns that were going around about um the first sort of great wave of British horror films, the Hammer films, um, but more particularly, I mean, uh, the the company that made Peeping Tom, Anglo Amalgamated, had made Horrors of the Black Museum and Circus of Horrors, which are actually so appallingly violent and sadistic and perverse that Peeping Tom looks mild after that. You'll remember in um, That'll Be the Day, there's an extract from Horrors of the Black Museum, which is when a lot of us saw this scene for the first time, because that was a film that was really hard to see for a while. And it's the one where the girl is given uh, a pair of binoculars. When you, uh, the, when you adjust the focus, shoot spikes into her eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like an unforgettable... That's the first scene of horrors of the black museum which only proceeds to get more violent and confrontational afterwards uh, you know compared to that peeping tom is quite tasteful um but i think no they and the fact that peeping tom takes place in this soho milieu um it the the, the news agent that sells the dirty pictures and the, and miles mallison playing the uh, the the pervert who comes in to buy the pornography and the the shooting of scenes and it's actually it's got a, a very single shot tasteful nude scene in it um it is pushing the boundaries um in sort of sexiness but in a rather sordid british yeah, you know, cold cup of tea way, rather than the the sauciness and the, um, the 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 stuff you got in in sort of Bridget Bardot films, in in you know, the things that, that we were primed to think of as sexy. Nobody really thinks of Peeping Tom as sexy, although it's got a lot of sexuality in it. Um, I also suspect it literally got critics where they lived. It was about the people yeah. they knew. I'd, I'd yeah. love to know where the press show for Peeping Tom was, but I can guarantee that it was in within three minutes' walk of the major locations. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. I absolutely. wonder if I mean, any I do, of those I do, critics... I do think that's one of the reasons why it hit them so hard, because it is he is walking around the streets that, I mean, as you and I and everyone knows, there's a, there's a square mile of Soho yeah. that our entire career exists in. Yeah. Yeah, um, and Peeping Tom is one of the few films actually set there. I mean, mm. a, around the time I suppose Espresso Bongo came out, which is, but that's, and, and this is like really arcane, but Espresso Bongo is a Brewer Street, isn't it? It's yeah. that era, area, just get Soho towards Piccadilly. That's, that's coffee bars and skiffle music. Whereas yeah. Peeping Tom is Fitzrovia. It's it's north north end of Water Street, it, it and it is, you know, uh, what later became you know pawn pawn shops, uh, and was still sort of. I, I love the fact that the news agent in Peeping Tom is still a news agent. Yeah, you can actually go there. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think there's, you know, you talk about the precedents with um, the sort of the, the Hammer film things. Like that. Do you think there is any precedent? I mean, obviously they wouldn't have seen it. But there is a weird fact that Eyes Without a Face is literally a couple of months beforehand. And now when you look back at the history of horror, that trilogy of Eyes Without a Face, Peeping Tom and Psycho all being within the same half year of each other is remarkable. Oh, yeah. And there are a few other key films in there. The the one that it's hard, I mean, that we don't get in Britain is um, uh, Mario Barber's Mask of Satan because that was banned. But that would have come out in that period. Um and uh, Roger Corman's Fall of the House of Usher as well. Uh, and I don't know. They're all about sort of looking and mutilation, but what they're also all about is um, 
sort of older people oppressing younger people. They're all, you know, they, you, you, know you have um, Mark's crazy father, Norman's crazy mother, you know, um, the, the mad doctor in, in Eyes Without a Face who's trying to yeah. reconstruct his daughter. Um, for the House of Usher, obviously it's the older brother and the younger sister who's buried alive. And in uh, Mask of Satan, it's the, the long dead princess who's trying to possess her, her descendant. And they're all about about old people torturing young people to turn them into monsters. Yeah, the, or most of the violence in these films is done by sort of the younger characters, but under the horrible, malign influence of an older generation. And maybe that is that's sounding a keynote for what horror is going to be in the 1960s. But also, it, it's guaranteed to tick off your parents, isn't it? It is. It, it's like releasing a pop single called "I Am an Antichrist," isn't it? It's like it's so much, and it's almost like I think that the filmmakers who made these films would probably not have wanted good reviews from those right. kind of people because it is like, yeah. Yeah, do you do you want to buy a rock and roll record? Your parents like? No, of course you don't. Yeah, it. Um, I, again, yeah. Of, of course, we we are now older than most of those critics were when they were dissing these films. But I I certainly remember that when we were sort of first you know, engaging with with horror as a term, we had a real sort of generational sense that this was our stuff. Um, and the people who disapproved of it were also the kind of people who didn't like the music we liked either and probably didn't well, like think... the way we dressed or, or how we cut our hair. Yeah, but that's the point of horror. Um, I think this is the a... thing is the thing is Kim that for our generation there was a pitched battle which was the video nasties yeah, which absolutely. despite despite the fact that many of the video nasties are, are not particularly worthy of consideration some key texts are and there was a clear battle line which was you were either on the side that took these films seriously and said there is interesting stuff in here or you were on the side that said this is the end of civilization and it is it's really strange even now looking back at it when almost all of them are classified I mean Cannibal Holocaust I think is you know Know, pretty close to uncut in the classified version now i think there's even a classified version of snuff um you know the famous sort of bondoogle you know uh, uh, it's not real but everybody thought it was but there was you you were either on one side or the other and on one there was you know there was you and there was ann bilson and there was alan jones and nigel floyd and then there was everyone else who thought this stuff was going to bring about and, and I, I get the, the feeling some of those everyone else's were the same critics who had given peeping tom those bad reviews peeping tom was one of the first films alexander walker reviewed badly yeah um so, and all those years later he was still at it yeah <laughs> although uh, alex was very inconsistent he loved the texas chainsaw massacre i first saw the uh texas chainsaw massacre with Alexander Walker introducing it. So, uh, um, but, the, and it was certainly the same newspapers that were, were turning around and, and giving um, yeah. sort of horror movies a bad time. Uh, I, I know, maybe they've, maybe what we need now are horror films that people hate in that same visceral way. I think yeah. that the forces of censoriousness have moved on to things like video games and rap music, although both of those are art forms that have, frankly, been around for 30 years now. So you th you'd think that the transgression would have worn off. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Thank you. 
Good afternoon. Here we have a quiet little motel tucked away off the main highway and as you see, perfectly harmless looking. When in fact, it has now become known as the scene of the crime. This motel also has, as an adjunct, an old house, which is, if I may say so, a little more sinister looking less innocent than the motel itself. And in this house, the most dire, horrible events took place. I think we can go inside because the place is up for sale, although I don't know who's going to buy it now. In that window on the second floor, the single one in front, that's where the woman was first seen. Let's go inside. This brings us now to to Psycho. That this kind of I mean, Psycho is now generally regarded to be you know the the, the big daddy of horror films. Obviously, it's in black and white, same as Eyes Without a Face. We don't have the lurid Eastman color that you have of Peeping Tom. It's made on a very very small budget. It's made effectively as a television production that just happens to be for the big screen. So, firstly. Why, I mean, is the story about Psycho's opening and the response to it, how much of it is mythology? How much of it is genuinely true? How much were people completely sideswiped by it? I think people were genuinely shocked by it because, I mean, Hitchcock, it's not so much the 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 violence and how horrific it is. It, and this is the thing that's really difficult to remember about Psycho, is it's a film with a twist ending. Um, and it's like... Um, I don't know, The Wicker Man or The Sixth Sense or Citizen Kane. Everybody who sees those films now knows where it, where they're going. But when Psycho opened, I mean, yeah, uh, okay, it was based on a novel, so, yeah, but not a particularly well-known novel. Uh, and I think that the main thing people took out of Psycho after the shower murder was that they did not see that coming. I mean, it's it's astonishing now that people sat through this whole film without knowing it was going to be Anthony Perkins at the end, uh, yeah. that people were genuinely fooled. And actually, I mean, uh, you know, the, the whole thing about killing, uh, you know, ostensibly killing the star of the film early on. In fact, Janet Lee doesn't die until halfway through the film. And now, if you just watch the opening credits the billing gives it away. You know, it's Anthony Perkins, Vera Miles, uh, John Gavin, supporting actors, and then, and with Janet Lee, which is like, a, you know, um, a credits agency billing speak for she's not going to be around that long, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, if it says, and with, that's not your lead character. Um, but maybe... In 1960, audiences weren't quite as sophisticated to that. And and Hitchcock made a big thing about, you know, don't give away the ending. It's the only one we have, which I think is, is um, absolutely wonderful. I end up writing a story called The Only Ending We Have uh, because it's such a perfect line. And, you know, I... I know, do you remember that thing of when we all went to the cinema where you just turn up, see the, you know, coming in the middle of the film and then. Continuous performance. Into, yeah. And then you do that thing of saying, oh, this is where we came in and leave. And yeah. Leave. yeah. Um, and Hitchcock did that thing of not letting people do that, saying, you know, it's the film you need to see from the, the beginning. Um, again, watching it again uh, in the, the last couple of days, it's interesting how much. Of the beginning is sort of, um, sort of. It's not padding, but it's diversionary. It's t it's taking you into areas you don't know. You don't get to the Bates Motel until quite a long time in. There's this whole stuff with a traffic cop and with um, a, a used car salesman, which is actually really disturbing and creepy and, and uneasy. Now, I mean, uh, you do you do have a sense, uh, and again, maybe I'm I'm just. 
bolting it onto what we're all concerned with in current affairs at the moment. But you think that if Marion Crane had been black, she wouldn't have got past the cop. Yeah, it's like the, the, there is a, a, an ominous police stop early on and, and she acts in such a suspicious way. Yeah, you think that anybody who didn't look like Janet Lee would have done time for that. Um, and then we get to the, the Bates Motel. Quite an, and before you get to the Bates Motel, you started in this sort of, it's, it's Phoenix, Arizona, and it's very bland, it's very white, it's very light. Yeah, um, it's not gothic at all. It's not until the rain, it starts raining that the Bernard Herman score really kicks in. And it's not until you get to the Bates Motel and the Bates House on the Hill that it even starts looking like a horror film. Um, and I, there is a sort of sense that I'm not sure audiences at the time went to it thinking they were going to get a horror film. Uh, I think Hitchcock was associated with suspense and he'd made films that were kind of shocking and disturbing, uh, but he'd also made films that were just fun. Um, the weird thing about Psycho is it is kind of fun. Uh, I mean, Hitchcock said that it was a joke. Um, I think that was one of those great uh, ingenuous fake statements he made about all this work uh, as, as, as a sort of diversionary tactic to, to stop people thinking, realising just how deeply felt most of his films were. But it is a film that makes fun of all the things we're supposed to take seriously. Yeah. The, the fact that it's all about stolen money and nobody cares about the money. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Mr. Lowry. Carolyn, Lion still isn't in. No, Mr. Lowry, but then she's always a bit late on Monday mornings. Buzz me the minute she comes in. You call her sister. No one's answering at the house. I call her sister, Mr. Lowry, where she works. The music maker's music store, you know. And she doesn't know where Marion is any more than we do. You better run out to the house. She may be unable to answer the phone. Her sister's going to do that. She's as worried as we are. I remember interviewing Robert Block and he said um, he said two things. First, he said, as far as he was concerned, the horror of Psycho was to do with that. It could be the, the man sitting next to you. It could be the person sitting next to you. It's the boy next door thing. And of course, obviously, this is all inspired by, you know, Ed Gein. Although the thing about Ed Gein is his neighbours thought he wasn't, you know, anything special, but he's not the handsome, good looking boy no, next yeah. door. So actually having, you know, having uh, Anthony Perkins there is a different thing. Robert Block did did say that as far as he remembered, Hitchcock had basically tried to get the novel effectively out of circulation so that people hadn't read it. Is that is that true? I think, yeah, I think there was a sense that Hitchcock had... had the stories he went, you know, he sort of bought up copies or whatever. I doubt yeah. it. I mean, I, for a start, in my, uh, on my shelves, I have... Uh, several editions of Psycho with pictures of Janet Leigh on the cover and soon to be a universal film. So yeah. uh, you could buy the book while it, while it was in release. The, one thing that does it, uh, occur to me this really is, is, and it is to do with the casting of The Boy Next Door of Anthony, Anthony Perkins. Norman in the book is like a, a, a fat, creepy, gross um, character. Yeah. He's, he's like the, the sort of characters Victor Buono played later and there are plenty of sort of slob evil characters it's like you know Joe Spinell in Maniac that that kind yeah. of thing but I wonder if Hitchcock um didn't want to make a film in which a fat creepy guy was the was the main menace because he essentially was a fat creepy guy that is how people who didn't like him perceived him um and yeah, because the, if you look in, at many of the films that Hitchcock made in the, the 50s, apart from his appearances in them, he, he quite often cast actors who look a bit like him. Edmund Gwen in um, The Trouble with Harry is one in particular. So he could have done that. He could have found a, a, a character actor who, you know, who fit that profile. Yeah. But it seems that he didn't. Do you know... Um in terms of why, you know, why Joe Stefano? Why was he the guy for the script? Because I mean, it, 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 it's well, you've having not read done that much before. I think, um, I, I think several of Hitch's gen usual collaborators had turned it down. Right. Uh, so I imagine Joe Stefano, was, and apparently the thing that that um, impressed 
Hitchcock about Stefano was that Stefano had been in analysis, so he knew all the psychological terms <laughs> uh, and, and, and was willing to throw that stuff about. And, I mean, I, I, Hitchcock, I am sure never went to uh, uh, a psychiatrist but he'd made several films he made spellbound yeah uh, so yeah. He, he was interested in that side of things but i think he thought of that as kind of hooey as as sort of um like the the bits uh, yeah the the psychiatrist at the end who explains norman bates yeah. is kind of like Dr. Van Helsing or the characters in The Mummy who explain Egyptian mythology or whatever. That's just to give you the framework for this monster. Yeah, that's your explanation of why this character is scary. Uh, yeah, it, and the fact that after that long speech, we then go into the cell and there's, then there's Norman and his mother's voiceover and the, and the grin and the skull and all that. It basically says that that long five-minute speech of analysis doesn't help anybody. Norman is still mad. I got the whole story, but not from Norman. I got it from his mother. Norman Bates no longer exists. He only half existed to begin with. And now, the other half has taken over. Probably for all time. Did he kill my sister? Yes. And no. The generally received opinion is that that speech is there, you know, against everybody's better judgment. And again, because that's a, every people who love Psycho hate that speech. They yeah, think it's my it's, it's my pandering. dad saw it when it came out, and he said he thought it was a great film until that speech. Yeah, uh, I I think that it works as a setup for that final moment, that final chill. Yeah, for the not I, hurting a fly. Yeah, that that moment. I, I think it's it's stronger for having had the, the the setup. I also think that there are a few tiny bits in of plot information in there. I know that it, uh, one of the other things Hitchcock was trying to do with Psycho was make a film that appealed commercially in a way that Vertigo hadn't. And if you remember, at the end of Vertigo, there's a gabble of trying to explain the plot and a lot yeah, of people yeah. just came out of it not understanding what had gone on or and there are there, in fact i think in the um the american release version of, of vertigo you don't even know if the bad guy has got caught yeah um uh, because we're so concentrating on something else happening that the the explanation is lost in that and i think hitchcock didn't want to do that again there's a general feeling with any classic movies that all sequels are, you know, unworthy of attention. In the case of Psycho, that's not entirely true, is it? No, I like all of the sequels to Psycho in different ways. Funnily enough, because, yeah, this is how obsessive I am. I watched them all in the last day um, because I got that great German Blu-ray box set of everything. So um, thinking, oh, I'm going to have to talk about Psycho. I might as well watch that again to get it in my memory. And I do that and I think, well, oh, in this box set, there's Psycho 2, 3, 4, Gus Van Sant. And, and Bates Motel, the TV movie. So I watched all of those as well. Um, wow. So which so which of the which of the sequels hold up for you? Because I me I remember two coming out and and it being intriguing. I remember three coming out and and it you know being better than better than people had expected. But so talk us through them. Which are the which are the good and which are the bad? The the interesting thing about the uh, the first three sequels, right? Psycho two, three, and four is they're yeah. all different films. Whereas if you look at most series, the sequels basically tell you the same story over and mm -hmm. over again. Yeah, it's, yeah. <coughs> Michael Myers kills more people. Yeah. yeah, more people go to the chainsaw house. What's interesting about Psycho 2 is it's not about Norman Bates killing people. It's about yeah. people plotting against Norman Bates. Yeah, and, it's a setup. Yeah, and so it's... A genuinely clever film with lots of surprises, um, lots of... And I think that also Anthony Perkins gives a different performance in each one of them. Um, Psycho 2 was written by Tom Holland, who did Fright Light, not, not the Spider-Man guy and not yeah. the historian, but the, the other Tom Holland. The first Tom Holland, in fact, <coughs> and directed by Richard Franklin, who'd made road games. Um, and that's a... A very, I think it's a very funny film. 
but it's got a lot of really good twists, and Perkins is brilliant. I also love Dennis Franz as the the sleazy guy who's taken over the Bates Motel, and it's got a bad mo- reputation as an adult motel. Uh, I like the way that every time Franz sees um, Norman Bates, he goes, "Hey, psycho!" <laughs> <laughs> Then um, Psycho 3, which was uh, written by uh, Charles Pogue, who wrote the Fly remake and directed by Anthony Perkins. Um, That, I think, is slightly less good than Psycho 2, but it's got some amazing things here. I love uh, Diana Scarwid as the the novice nun who becomes Norman's girlfriend. Uh, It's also... it really announces itself. The first line of dialogue you hear is a nun screaming, there is no God at the top of a bell tower, <laughs> which is copied from um, from Vertigo. Yeah. And accidentally killing the mother superior before straying into the desert. Um, and is that, is that around the same time that Perkins is making Crimes of Passion? Yeah, that's and, right. Um, and in fact, I, um, I interviewed Perkins um Uh, when Psycho 3 came out and he said that the thing that gave him the confidence to make Psycho 3 was working on Crimes of Passion. He realised that you could go that far within the framework of a commercial thriller. And I think you look at, you see, I think that there is, um, there are some, it's not quite as, as achieved as Psycho 2 because I think it's one of the cases where at some point in the, making they've slightly changed the ending i believe the original concept was for the the most of the murders in the film were to have been committed by the character jeff fay plays who's kind of like a a drifter who in the original conception is like a norman bates copycat and it's all about how norman bates gets annoyed that someone's copying his style um but but the film sort of loses that but it does concentrate on this really strange interesting relationship with the uh, the, the the suicidal nun um and it's got the, the moment where norman realizes that the the hot blonde is in the is, is in the bathroom next door and he dresses up in the uh, the mother drag and gets the knife and he goes and he pulls back the shower curtain and the nuns just cut her wrists and there's blood all over the place and he suddenly turns back to norman and saves her life um and it Again, it's full of these things. It turns it around. It's not what you were expecting from a psycho psycho sequel. And then Psycho 4, which is Psycho 4, the beginning, which... I don't think I've seen. It's... um It's written by Joe Stefano, which is the interesting thing about it. It's directed by Mick Garris. Perkins comes back and is sort of... There's a, a... a modern day story which doesn't work particularly well. But there is great stuff, which is which has actually been reprised in the recent Bates Motel TV series um, with, with the flashbacks to young Norman and, and his mother alive. And, and the thing that really works there is the casting is brilliant. Young Norman is Henry Thomas from E.T., um, who at 18 has sort of grown to look exactly like young Anthony Perkins with the broad shoulders and the kind of blank face look. And young Mrs. Bates is played by Olivia Hussey from Romeo and Juliet and Black Christmas and that. And she is astonishing in the part and makes you realise Mrs. Bates couldn't have been old from what we're told in the backstory. She had to be kind of sexy and demented as well. And the, the scenes of... Thomas and, and Hussey driving each other crazy in the 1940s are brilliant. The rest yeah. of it is a bit TV movie-ish. It was made for cable TV. Perkins is kind of fun in it. Then yeah. you get to, uh, there's, a, there's a TV movie called Bates Motel, which was the pilot for a series that didn't happen, which has Bud Court as Norman's best friend taking over the motel. And it seemed to me that then the idea was to do a Bates Motel TV series, which would have been on the format of fantasy island or the love boat you know every week different guests would check into the bates motel and you'd have different (laughs) strange stories about them i i I can't understand why that didn't get picked up and taken to series uh and then you have gus van sant's shot for shot remake which is one of the most perverse ideas any that has ever happened in in the cinema um i find it absolutely fascinating because it's like it's like getting really convincing counterfeit currency yeah it's like objectively you look at it and you think 
all these actors are really good. Apart from Vince Vaughn, they're probably as good, if not better, than Alfred Hitchcock's cast. You know, this story is really good. The dialogue is really good. It, you know, it's still always, it, if you've not seen Psycho, it probably is really compelling. But it's a ghost. You know, it's simply um, a reprise of something you have seen. Uh, and... Yeah, and and it's it, in its attempts to be exact, you start looking at the tiny little differences, uh, yeah. and I I do find that it works in that sort of you know there's that um, Jorge Luz Borges story about the guy who tries to rewrite Don Quixote, and it feels like that to me rather than an attempt to make a commercial horror film. Oh, my boy's best friend is his mother. <laughs> she just. Uh... She just goes a little mad sometimes. <laughs> Mother! Oh, God! Mother! I, I remember, if I remember correctly, they don't even update the amount of money. So the whole thing is set in motion by what's... Oh, they do. No, it's, it's four. Oh, they do? Okay. Yeah. Oh, fine. Okay, fine. So it has been updated. All right, yeah. fine. And there so are a few other tiny things that have to change, but not that many. Yeah. And it is... Really, um, I suppose the... the, the it, what's really shocking is just seeing it in colour. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> so... Yeah, I mean, there was all the stories when it first came out. People saying, "Yeah, well, this must be some copyright thing. It must be that Universal have made it because they're which all of which is hooey, obviously." No, but no. it was pe- it was people trying to make sense of why have you done this? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, but, yeah. and yeah, it is a a thoroughly perverse endeavor, which makes me kind of want. And I say, I, you know, I watched it again last night on a double bill with. <laughs> with Psycho, yeah, um, and it's it it is kind of a fascinating exercise. It also shows there are some things where the the rhythms of filmmaking had changed between 1960 and 1998. There's a you realise that they that even Gus Van Sant breaks doing a literal shot for shot remake at the climax where. Alfred Hitchcock actually ends things very quickly. Yeah, um, yeah, you, yeah. Norman's there with the knife after Vera Miles has found the, the the mummy in the basement, and then instantly John Gavin's in there and, and takes him down. Whereas Gus Van Sant adds an extra little beat. In fact, one of the nice things that that he adds is that Viggo Mortensen comes in to rescue um, Julianne Moore from from Vince Vaughn and gets sort of knocked out and then Julianne Moore just kicks Norman Bates in the face <laughs> you know so the the you know, the sister actually wins rather than the boyfriend having to rescue her right yeah. see I, I I haven't seen it since the since the press uh, screening for it the only the only thing I remember is and I may be misremembering this are there sort of strange lightning flashes yes, during right. the... A, in, in the in the the death of Arbogast for some reason there's a shot of a goat wandering across the road no idea what that was about <laughs> But <laughs> well, that's kind of it's like the Gus Van Sant little flourishes, isn't it? Just yeah, to say I am right. doing something different to this film. Here's yeah. a goat, and here's some, yeah. and here's uh, some lightning. But other than and that, you know what? Okay. I actually think it was a more honourable thing because the obvious thing to do would have been to you know go back to the book and get a different script and just you know do what they what like the remake of Dial M for Murder, a perfect murder. You know, it's a different adaptation of the same material. It tries yeah. not to be comparable with Hitchcock but that would sort of be a cheat you know it would sort of be a getter and then I think everyone would have just said oh well Hitch did it better yeah uh, and people still said that but the the concept was so odd it's a bit like that I mean there was that 24-hour psycho where the artist slowed it down yeah. frame by frame I hated frame. that I absolutely hated that they just seemed because the thing that really annoyed me about that was it was kind of like an artist saying hey if you slow Psycho down, you realise that actually it's really well made. It was like, yeah, we all knew that at 24 <laughs> frames a second. We didn't need you to yeah. slow it down. <laughs> There's, I, 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 have a, I have a real problem with the appropriation of film into the art gallery. And somehow, oh, well, we've taken it from being a film to being a work of art. You kind of feel like it was a work of art yeah. before you did anything with it. Yeah. And I think this is, this is probably kind of, kind of a good place to kind of bring this to a close. 
I think that one of the things that, that those two, three films that we've spoken about centrally all had is they all had an air of disreputability about them yeah. on some level. Yeah, but they were also all made by... Um, reputable filmmakers. artists. Not just reputable yeah. filmmakers, but serious filmmakers. You know, there are plenty of reputable filmmakers who we think of now as, as pompous old windbags, right? But no, these are actual, <laughs> genuinely engaged filmmakers. Yeah, filmmakers that film fans loved. And I think one of the things that cineasts love about yeah, Hitchcock, Powell, Franju is that they made films for people. You know, they were films... Yeah, I, I, I think one of, the, you know, one of the reasons why all those French crit, f- film critics loved Hitchcock so much is that he was at once an absolutely first-ranked film artist, but also an enormously successful artist. It's like he could make films like Rear Window, which would seem to be amazingly experimental, and yet it would play first-run theatres and all audiences would go and see them and would love them. It wasn't the thing of you trick people into coming and seeing an art movie. It's like you make an art movie, but people love it. Uh, and I think that that's probably secretly what all those Kaya's du Cinema people wanted. They wanted to make their deeply personal art movies and then have huge audiences come and say how great they were. Kim, that is a that's a great note to, to bring this to an end on. I mean, as always, I could talk to you about this uh, all evening. Uh, really grateful. Thank you ever so much for joining us. Uh, hopefully oh, you and to. I will get together, yeah. get to, uh, to, to work together on another series of uh, Secrets of Cinema, on yeah, which you've been so the lead too. writer all the way through. And uh, thanks ever so much. I look forward to being able to see you again in the flesh. Yes, well, um, eventually. Yeah. Our patron viewers can see that that not only do I have uh, nightmare movies here right behind me, which which has been all the way through instantly come out of Mayor's home entertainment service. Excellent. I also have a very valuable first edition of Anno Dracula Excellent. on cool. the bookshelf there, yeah. which I'm which I'm which I'm very very pleased about. So Kim, it's been a real pleasure, yeah. and I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there we are. That's the great Kim Newman talking about Psycho, Peeping Tom, and, of course, in passing, Eyes Without a Face. Thanks ever so much for downloading this Kermit on Film podcast. If you want more, you'd like to see a video of me and Kim having that uh, conversation, then go to our Patreon page. Also there, there's loads and loads of exclusive extras, and it's really great to have your support. So do check out our Patreon page. Plus, there is a new MK3D live on the BFI's YouTube channel. Absolutely guest-packed. Check that out as well. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Keep watching the sky. Guys. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.